Hi there, Wild Wild Tech listeners, Jordan here. If you notice that I sound a bit different in this episode than in previous episodes, it's for a good reason. I've moved house, which is very exciting, but I haven't finalized my home studio setup just yet. So that's why. So Joshua, I've been spending a fair amount of time recently watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine, uh, which I love because uh, I think it spends more time on the kind of non-human characters than the other series. Like in a recent episode, uh, we learned that this Cardassian called Garrick, who lives on the station, uh, has been lending Cardassian literature to the human doctor, Julian Bashir, so that he can kind of learn more about their culture. And we see him hand over one of these books, except this book comes in the form of like a little, like a little stick, like the size of a pen, kind of like a USB stick. Except I went and looked it up and the USB stick wasn't invented until five years later later. <laughs> That's so cool. It's funny because you run into like this chicken or egg sort of situation where like Star Trek has this future stuff and then this future stuff happens. But like also the people who make things like this also love Star Trek. <laughs> so you start to wonder like, did they want to make this Star Trek thing real? Or, you know, was Star Trek just sort of like in that wavelength and ahead of its time in a very smart way? They've also got like what? Um, on Star Trek, there's like communicators, which are very much like cell phones, right? Touchscreens were a big Star Trek thing. Yeah, they all have these like little tablets, like way before the iPad came out. Right. Uh, and Siri, you know, like mm -hmm. they talk to their computers <laughs> who talk back to them, you know? Do you want to know something funny about the, the USB flash drive specifically? Oh, hit me, please. So the there are disputes about who actually invented it, but the Singaporean company that holds the patent for the thumb drive is called Trek 2000 International. That's incredible. Uh, <laughs> and, and like, it's funny to remember that, you know, cutting edge tech companies are also like run by huge dorks who love the stuff I do, you know? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. uh, And sometimes that's uncomfortable when you have like surveillance companies named after Palantir, which is a Lord of the Rings thing. Mm -hmm be a little gross. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely uh, a lot of ground to cover as far as the topic of science fiction influencing reality, but we're not going alone. Our tour guide for this journey through fictional worlds is tech journalist Alexandra Samuel. Science fiction just kind of creates a vocabulary of possibility. It introduces ideas that may be very far-fetched, maybe technologically impossible at the time that they're envisaged, and yet provide sort of a beacon. When we get back, we explore strange new worlds and learn how science fiction has influenced our current reality and how it might predict our future. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
welcome back to Wild Wild Tech. In this show, we explore the impact of technology on culture. And in this episode, we're switching it up to look at how culture has influenced technology. Specifically, we are talking about examples of science fiction becoming fact. Joshua, you've played 80 Days, right? Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a you know, super fun and lightly loose retelling of Around the World in 80 Days. Uh, it's, it's a fun, like, narrative game. Right. It's, I mean, it's a brilliant game. And yeah, you're right. It's based on the 19th century French novelist Jules Verne's book, uh, Le Tour du Monde en 80 Jours, otherwise known as Around the World in 80 Days. And it only took 16 years after the book's publication for American journalist Nellie Bly to make her trip around the world in a record-breaking 72 days. But as well as predicting human ingenuity, Verne also predicted some scientific inventions. He wrote about lunar modules in oh. From the Earth to the Moon, which he wrote in 1865. Uh, the first one wasn't used until 1969, more than 100 years later. Damn. Yep. Also, electric submarines, which he wrote about in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1870, uh, which were invented in 1960. That's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting this from a great timeline of examples on io9, uh, which actually came from one of their readers called Isabel Turner. We will link to it in the show notes. One of my favorites from the 19th century, though, on this timeline is Edward Bellamy's book, Looking Backward, 2000 to 1887, which was first published in 1888. Have you read this one? No, but I love that title for a book written in 1888. <laughs> but one thing I like about the title is that most people just refer to it as looking backward. They don't bother <laughs> the years. Um, but I actually have read this one. And in this book, looking backward, the protagonist, Julian West, falls asleep in 1887 and wakes up in the year 2000 to find that the United States has become a socialist utopia. Oh, well, you know, I hope it's better than what we have now, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends on your perspective. Um, <laughs> you know, lots to talk about there. Uh, but I'm specifically interested for today's episode anyway in his description of a post-money society. Uh, I actually have an extract here if you'd be up for giving us a short reading. Uh, yeah, absolutely. How is this distribution managed? I asked. On the simplest possible plan, replied Dr. Leap. A credit corresponding to his share of the annual product of the nation is given to every citizen on the public books at the beginning of each year, and a credit card issued him with which he procures at the public storehouses found in every community, whatever he desires, whenever he desires it. So Bellamy's credit cards are made of pasteboard rather than plastic, which wouldn't be invented for another 20 years, and they function more like debit cards, but it was a pretty savvy prediction. Okay, so when was the credit card invented? Well, spending technology went through a few phases, like charge coins <laughs> and the charger plate. <laughs> but in 1958, Bank of America launched the Bank AmeriCard, the first general purpose credit card. So not quite 100 years again here, but pretty damn close. Yeah, I mean, close enough that like it could be that the people at Bank of America had read his book. I mean, it seems unlikely given how like utopian and socialist <laughs> his book was, but you know, it's possible. And it can be really fun to think about our favorite works of science fiction influencing the real world. But of course, it is not all holodecks and flying cars. So to help us sort through 
fact, fiction, and possible futures, we enlisted the help of tech journalist Alexandra Samuel. I'm Alexandra Samuel, and I'm a technology and data journalist. I write for The Wall Street Journal, JSTOR Daily, and I have a book coming out this month called Remote Inc. How to Thrive at Work wherever you are, which I co-authored with Robert Posen, who is the author of Extreme Productivity. Like many tech journalists, you and I obviously included, Alexandra is pretty into science fiction. Well, I'm a hard sci-fi person. That is to say, I really love what is known as speculative fiction. To me, what's interesting about, you know, any kind of speculative fiction is that when you imagine some kind of scientific or social scientific context that sort of changes the rules of the game, it allows you to look at stories and human motivations and social organization through a different lens. Oh yeah, this is one of the best things about speculative fiction where, you know, there are all sorts of like great ideas about the future, but they're all really about today. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think, why I like it as well. Although I guess sometimes, depending on how you feel about the world today, sometimes it's like imagining a better future, right? (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes I do sort of like skew towards like the bleaker stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so not surprised. But, but hey. (laughs) We started this call by uh, you telling me that you were watching Gangs of London. (laughs) Yeah, okay. All right. You know, uh, I I deserve that. (laughs) But I also like them because like, you know, they end up being uh, the most optimistic to me. Like one of the books I love a lot is called The Three-Body Problem. Oh yeah, I love that book. You were talking about a friend of yours reading that recently. Right, right? yeah. And he's moved on to the second one now, which I actually haven't read, but by all accounts is even bleaker. (laughs) Hell yeah. I'm about to start that one. So (laughs) I'm excited. Alexandra also has this kind of geographical link to popular science fiction. I have to do a hometown shout out for William Gibson (laughs) um, in Neuromancer because uh, Granville Street, which is kind of the main drag in Vancouver where I live, Gibson had the idea for the term cyberspace, which of course, (laughs) I guess it's kind of come and gone a little bit, but it definitely shaped, you know, for a generation, how people understood the context of the internet. Oh yeah. Neuromancer, if you don't know, is huge. Uh, it deeply informed stuff like The Matrix, basically any anything where there is a sort of like physical representation of, of hacking and being in cyberspace or the internet. That's all kind of like, a lot of people got it from Neuromancer. Yeah, a load of the language we use, I guess, is from that book. And like us, Alexandra was also quick to mention the influence of Star Trek. For example, you know, the Newton, which was Apple's first take on a tablet, basically, was inspired by, you know, the devices in Star Trek. And you certainly can see in, you know, today's uh, smartphones and tablets, you can see the tricorders and so and communicators that we had on Star Trek. Some of us may possibly literally own Star Trek communicators, but if so, that will not be on the public record. (laughs) Your secret's safe with us. It's, it's really, really funny. One of the things I like about Star Trek is just how clunky a lot of the tech yeah. is, right? <laughs> uh, none of it is nearly as sleek as an Apple product, but like the idea is there and they're, they're, it's just sort of like they're trying to imagine it with like the very limited capabilities of the time and also the limited budgets, right? That's the other thing about Star Trek. It was very cheaply made. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I love I love like watching them. You know, they're using touchscreen devices, but they also have these computers that have like a bajillion buttons as well. And like mm-hmm. Data, the Android in the next generation, his I think they mention like what his processing power is at one point, and it's like you know less than a modern mobile phone probably. Um, <laughs> I also love that they have like you know they have space travel with artificial gravity, which is like unachievable basically by modern standards. And yet, yeah, everything else is so clunky. Like they have one book per USB stick, you know? Science fiction just kind of creates a vocabulary of possibility. It introduces ideas that may be very far-fetched, maybe technologically impossible at the time that they're envisaged, and yet provide sort of a beacon for actual scientists uh, and technology creators to, you know, aspire to and work towards. And, you know, it's it's really quite, to me, quite extraordinary now as a like longtime hardcore Star Trek person, for example, to look at the screens and so on in Star Trek series of 20 years ago and realize that they already look outdated relative to today. Oh, yeah. Uh, Like you were saying, you know, there there are so many buttons. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? How there's like a nostalgia for buttons at the moment, like with new mobile phones coming out that have the actual buttons on them again. Because for a while you didn't really get that, but now it's like popular again. Oh, yeah. I remember being in IT class when I was a kid and we saw this video that was like the home of the future. And it was all like, it was basically a smart home, but like shown to me like 20 years ago before they were really a thing, you know, with like motion sensors and touch controls and voice control and everything was connected and all this kind of stuff. And I remember thinking how futuristic that seemed. And now it's like everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Basically, just like, you know, much like Star Trek, the first drafts of like things that like we're much better at now, Mm -hmm. uh, like virtual reality, um, that's that's one. Like uh, people, I want like 90s sci-fi was obsessed with virtual reality mm-hmm. and uh we uh it was real clunky and and awkward and weird and uh now it's uh you know still a little weird but less clunky <laughs> <laughs> yeah i wonder if the popularity of virtual reality in science fiction movies is why so many people now like the people who are into vr are really into it and really convinced that it's going to be the future even though we've had it for a while now and it's like it exists we figured out what it's good for and what it's not good for, and it's kind of just there. There's still people who are like real diehard VR people who want it to be the everything, and it just isn't, right? Oh, yeah. So badly. It's not quite VR, but there, there's a show out called Made for Love, and uh, his it's about a, a woman who divorces like a tech mogul and wants to be separated from him, but can't because he implanted a surveillance chip in her brain. Oh, um it's very, it's, it's, it's a comedy even that knows that this is horrific, but like, so, uh, it's, you know, it's very deft and well done, but the tech mogul like pretty much lives on a holodeck, right? Like mm-hmm. he's got a whole complex that's just like a bunch of VR, you know, AR cubes and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just like how we've, how we've even imagined that stuff has gone has accelerated so much. So one thing that Alexandra mentioned was minority report. Oh Yeah. Where you have, you know, in the movie, you there was this at the time very flashy interface where you know Tom Cruise is manipulating files in a kind of VR environment. Um, well, you know that's now kind of possible. You don't look like Tom Cruise, unfortunately, just by putting on your VR goggles. But you know those those kinds of 
aspirational visions, I think, can be really helpful for people in thinking about what maybe to work on and and what to develop. But I think, you know, equally and perhaps more important, you know, there's also, of course, a huge strain of, of dystopian science fiction that exists to warn us about technology. So like the Terminator. There's so many killer robots, right? I mean, I do think that Having, you know, seen Skynet and seen um, Ex Machina and like so many different visions of computers and AI gone wrong, you know, there is some level at which I think that starts to filter into the culture in terms of people's anxieties around you know, Facebook surveillance, anxieties around having an Alexa echo, you know, in every room of the house. And, you know, now I say that as somebody who is totally surveilled by Facebook and does have an Alexa in every room of the house. But I recognize that, you know, that does mean the robot overlords are potentially going to kill us faster. And and I have trained my children to talk to Alexa with the assumption that she will eventually rule us and we should therefore treat her with respect. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, uh, if you watch a Terminator movie, uh, it's much funnier slash scarier if you replace Skynet, the fictional company, with like Amazon in in your mind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if I'm particularly sold on the idea of like killer robot overlords, but I am interested in questions around how we treat smart assistants, not least because until recently, the most popular ones defaulted to a female voice. Yeah. And that's also quite common in science fiction. Right. Exactly. Like depressingly realistic, if you think about it. And it's like, did the Jetsons robot maid Rosie influence Siri having a female voice or did the patriarchy influence both? (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's funny because like, you know, just like the Jetsons were kind of, our vision of the future is very limited by our present, you know, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And uh, so like what the Jetsons was the sixties mm-hmm. and uh, you know, we have flying cars, but we still have that women be shopping, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> mentality in the future as well. Yeah. And yet all people want to talk about is the flying cars and, you know, why we don't have them yet. Alexandra calls them a predictive failure. What's interesting about predictive failures is that it always pays to make bold predictions because people will remember you as the person who predicted the iPhone and forget that you were the person who also predicted flying cars and, you know, chips in your brain. I would say that the failures of science fiction, any failure of prediction is always a not yet. It's not a never, with the possible exception of time travel. And so, you know, I think for the most part, I, I you know, I think a lot about, there's a wonderful novel called uh, All Our Wrong Todays, which basically begins from the premise that, you know, that that future that we were promised, the utopian future of, of flying cars and abundant energy and so on, that future does exist. Um, but there was a, a temporal accident that has left all of us trapped in the wrong future. Uh, I buy that. Wrong future. The, like, the, <laughs> there's a joke online about how we're in like the stupidest future. Yeah. Where, you know, like... Um, it's just sort of like we have all this innovation, but uh, everything kind of still sucks for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And like the utopian advances of technology are sort of like not for everyone. Yeah, I really love stories about time travel and multiple worlds, though it's interesting what Alexandra says about these predictive failures mostly 
with the exception of time travel, being not yet. <laughs> That's a very fun distinction and also important. Uh, so like what sci-fi tech does she think we can maybe expect to see in the real world in the future? To me, probably the big three uh, in terms of technologies that come up commonly in science fiction and yet have not arrived would be the brain implant, the sentient, you know, self-aware AI, aka the killer robot, and uh, abundant energy, right? Those are kind of the three pieces that show up again and again in different science fiction uh, works. And um, in a sense, without abundant energy, none of these other things are possible. And the abundant energy piece is the only piece there that still feels at all far-fetched. And it's also, of course, the most important. If we had abundant, clean energy tomorrow, it would, I don't want to pretend it would solve every problem on earth, but it would, would go a good long way. <laughs> um, the other pieces, you know, are, are more mixed. And in most science fiction, they tend to show up negatively rather than positively. You know, the Omniscient AI is uh, out to control slash destroy humanity. And the brain implant um, is, you know, also used as a tool of control. And, you know, I think that's because in, in fiction, you know, ultimately we're working out what are fundamentally kind of psychological or sometimes sort of spiritual dilemmas and, and the human need for autonomy and self-determination is so fundamental that exploring scenarios of conscious AI or mind control um, allow writers into that conversation and, and allow us to explore that dilemma of autonomy in a new light. And I hope it means that as those technologies evolve, we will uh, give careful thought. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that a brain implant would help me with my job and remembering things. And you know what? Maybe I could just like write on autopilot for like emails and shit that I don't care about, <laughs> but also uh, don't want a needle in my brain, man. Just no, <laughs> d d d barely like actual needles that, you know, for health reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Screw brain implants. Give me abundant, clean energy. Give it now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's a classic case of, you know, priorities wrong. Uh, I don't know. Elon, Elon Musk wants to build a tunnel for electric cars. That's pretty much a train. Mm -hmm. you know, he's th you're, think you're thinking of a train, uh, <laughs> just, just car, electric cars in a, in a loop in a tunnel. That's, that's a train, bro. It's just classic wrong priorities all the time. He's working on these wrong priorities. He's, he's a dork for the weirdest things, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess that's capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting when you look at sci-fi, whether you look at movies, TV, books, we really see these two different visions for the future of work. And frankly, they're, they're almost always dystopian. When we get back, the dystopian future from your favorite science fiction might be closer than you think. Welcome back to Wild Wild Tech. 
We've been looking at the ways in which science fiction has made predictions that have played out in the real world or could do in the future, which is sometimes fun and exciting and sometimes downright dystopian, especially when it comes to the future of work. The only utopian future in which we see anything like work is basically a future in which work seems to be more like a hobby. Um, you never get the sense that, you know, people on Star Trek are in Starfleet so they can put food on the table. When you see people, you know, working in most books and TV shows and so on in the future, it's really one of two scenarios. We're either in a kind of dystopian gig economy where, um, you know, you're going job by job. And I think about something like, you know, I was just remembering that it was kind of a crazy movie with Justin Timberlake called In Time, where you, everybody has like a clock embedded in their arm and you literally have to work to extend your life according to the number of hours that are embedded in your arm. So you've got this kind of, you know, dystopian view of work, which is, you know, terribly gig-like and exploitative. And then the other version that we often get is sort of like, the corporation of the future as having become the new society. So, you know, if you look at, you know, Margaret Atwood's last um, sci-fi novel, The Heart Goes Last, you know, you basically have to join up and, and go and work for a big company in order to eat. Same theme came up in this uh, wonderful novel on such a full sea um, by Chang Rei Lee. Uh, you know, again, a future where, you know, essentially your your work community is your community. And that is a theme that comes up over and over again. You know, I didn't watch In Time. All I remember is that it starred Justin Timberlake. Did not expect him to make a pivot for to, to sci-fi. So uh, good for him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on such a full sea sounds really good, but also like really uncomfortable because that's a... Uh, describing a sort of like mentality that's very much here where like, you know, your, your boss is like, we're family mm -hmm. and you know. Yeah. The notion of the, the fampany, right? Yeah. But yeah, I've seen the movie in time and it can be hard to watch something like that uh, and not think about the very real ways in which work in the real world is linked to lifespan, like especially mm. in a country without a national health service for example. So Alexandra has clearly thought a lot about this. So I actually think both of those dystopias are not just likely, but already present. We mm. see them now. I mean, you see them in actually just about every organization, right? Now has a divide between the employees who have benefits and some degree of job security, and they have the matching t-shirts and they go to the company retreats. And then all of the freelancers who might be hired through an on-demand service. And, you know, we already are in that kind of two-track economy. It's just that it's not an either or. We're not in a dystopia where it's one or the other. We're in a dystopia where it's both. A world where people who are still employees with all the benefits that employment brings and the sense of identity and the sense of community and the sense of security also get to live a little bit more like gig workers. They get to set their own schedule a little bit more. They get to determine the pace of their day a little bit more. And I think we're seeing that already in this interest in, you know, combining home and remote work. What's, what's difficult, of course, is that that best of both worlds scenario is still 
limited to a relatively narrow group of people who are relatively privileged. Not every job can be done from home. Not every employer is willing to be flexible. So for a lot of people, you know, it isn't a matter of getting to have a job, but work with the flexibility of a gig gig worker. Uh, Gig work is maybe the only choice or full-time employment on site is the only choice. Yeah, uh, I have spent an extensive amount of time as a gig worker. (laughs) And you still do, Jordan. (laughs) Yay. Uh, I mean, I still do also, in addition to the the full-time job. And uh, it's it's really bizarre. It's really uncomfortable. Like you, uh, well, here's something you might not know, given that we don't have a national health service. So we have, you know, private health insurance here. And, uh, you know, if you don't, if you're a a freelancer, you uh, go on, you know, a government, regulated marketplace and you shop for a bunch of plans, which are all exorbitantly expensive and none of them are really what you want, but you know, you you find the best one you can uh, to get the best sort of health coverage you can afford, which again, not, not very great. And then uh, the other way that you can get health insurance is through your job. If you're a full-time employee and you can get the health insurance from the same company, the same health insurance provider on the marketplace and as, uh, and from your job, but the one from the marketplace is shittier. Uh, even even the website that you log on to to check your status is not as nice as the one that they make for people on the company-owned plans, like plans given to them by through their employer. See, like, it's perspective, right? Like, to me, that sounds pretty dystopian. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I guess, like, sci-fi dystopian futures are more like dystopian presence for a lot of people in the world. I still remember the the hope that some people had at the beginning of the pandemic that we would all club together and act collectively and quickly and that we would learn lessons from that that would help us to build a better world. But, you know, clearly Alexandra's hope that humanity will do what's necessary to improve our future prospects is uh, is gone. I'm not that hopeful about it, but I seriously, I have like so little hope for humanity saving itself. But maybe if all of us have watched The Terminator enough times, the folks who are writing these new AIs will build in enough safeguards and enough humanity into the AIs that the AIs will actually be able to avert the worst of humanity's excesses. And we've certainly given them the tools to do it because uh, when you look at what, humans have been able to accomplish through ad targeting and social media and disinformation, all of which is handled pretty clumsily by the people driving it, you know, a a truly sophisticated AI could do some good work with us. Yeah, I don't necessarily vibe with that per se, because like, as Alex says, with uh, AI being used for like ad targeting and disinformation, AI just sort of like replicates and exacerbates the, the biases of it, the people writing it. Just sort of like, we see this problem where uh, cameras and, and facial recognition, you know, literally discriminate against people of color. Like, you know, self-driving cars uh, have had a couple instances, and it, you know, it might just be an anomaly. It doesn't necessarily mean people are awful racist making it, but, you know, are less likely to detect people of color as people. There are all these sort of like weird glitches and flaws that are just sort of like, replicating our own cultural problems. Yeah, I mean, I think that Alexandra is kind of joking about letting the killer robots wipe us out if necessary. But like, 
I think it's funny that, you know, you always talk about computers being really, really literal. And that's that's kind of what happens in movies like, you know, like iRobot, where the robots end up turning on the humans because they their primary motivator is to protect humanity. And they've realized that we can't be trusted to look after ourselves. And I mean, that is true, right? Like you look at the climate crisis and people know the facts and they know what needs to be done, but they find it so hard to get beyond like short-term thinking and like messed up priorities. And I guess the idea is, you know, in a perfect world, we could get some kind of AI and just be like, look, all you have to do is do whatever it takes to protect the climate, which will in the long term save us. And, you know, that might mean killing off a few climate deniers or wiping out a few government officials. (laughs) The Terminator, but for anti-vaxxers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I guess it's just like, you know, this technology is being used already and is leading us towards dystopian future. And, you know, maybe it could be turned to lead us into a more utopian one instead, I think is the point that she's making. Yeah, yeah. No, and in that sense, I kind of vibe with her and like where it's just sort of like, hey, uh, we're not going to solve this, so might as well be the robot, (laughs) the killer robots. Science fiction is really good at instilling a sense of anxiety about the what-ifs. It used to also be good at instilling a sense of excitement and possibility around the what-ifs. That style of kind of utopian science fiction has fallen out of favor slash fashion in recent years, I think, you know, because we live in some scary times. And frankly, the pace of technological change in the past century, and particularly the past couple of decades, is you know, so fast that the role of fiction, I think, is often to help us grapple with the anxiety around change rather than to feel excited about leaning into it. And so I I really think it's important to either look for or even internally craft your own utopian vision. Um, Think about the scenario where things might turn out okay and work towards that. And, you know, really, really seriously, that's that's why I have kind of come to put my hope in some version of smarter than us, better than us AI, because it feels like AI is coming along pretty fast. It feels like a lot of huge social problems are also coming along pretty fast. And it also feels really worrying that we have created so many technologies for mass manipulation and mass persuasion that for me to feel hopeful about the future really requires imagining a world in which those technologies come together to solve our problems instead of to compound them. So Joshua, what science fiction future are you hoping for next? Yeah, I mean, a future where we're alive. (laughs) Like, so I don't like reading very bleak science fiction, and I tend toward the more utopian stuff. But there comes a point, especially with, you know, the climate crisis, where you have to kind of, you have to accept that things are changing and start thinking about how we will adapt to a different climate and a different world. And there is a kind of genre of science fiction that is about that, right? There's like solar punk, 
I think they're calling it, like imagining a future where we've transitioned to cleaner energy and things like that. And, you know, we we do, like Alexandra posits, you know, we use AI technology in in helpful and beneficial ways, like, you know, like weather prediction kinds of things will be immensely useful, you know, in future as we have more and more adverse weather effects of the changing climate, you know, the ability to, maybe we won't be able to avoid, you know, huge storms and things, but if we can predict them, then we can use technology to protect ourselves from the worst consequences of them. Stuff like that, I think, is what we need to be looking at. Yeah. My favorite uh, science fiction is uh, one where, uh, there's something new in the world and, you know, it's, it's a problem, right? It's a problem we don't know how to solve. And uh, we sort of like apply ourselves to solving it, right? Like there's that, that film uh, Arrival, you know, mm. like three body problem, what we were talking about, where just an existential threat or a change in, in our understanding of the world that just sort of like realigns our interests and needs. And that's basically sort of like, it acts as a, as a compelling counter to, you know, just rampant self-interest that is exacerbated through capitalism. Right. And, uh, that sort of, uh, collective interest, collective good. It doesn't necessarily have to be like a Star Trek utopian thing. We just need a big enough problem. And like, and that's the sort of like sci-fi, like, uh, I like most. That's what I like about The Expanse. Like the way it starts with these different factions, like fighting with each other, and then this external threat comes along and they kind of find ways to work together against it. Yeah. I mean, I guess we kind of hoped that that would happen with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it did and didn't to varying extents. So right. we need something bigger. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> like- I think what I like at the moment is science fiction that is set way in the future. Like The Expanse, right? In The Expanse, the climate crisis has happened. We've found ways to accommodate the the changing climate. You know, we've built huge walls around New York City, etc. cetera. Um, and like Kim Stanley Robinson, have you ever read any of his work? I have one of his books. Uh, haven't read mm. it yet, but like he, <laughs> he, he seems like he's, he's full of incredible ideas. Yeah, he's very hard science fiction. So it's based on like things that could actually happen. But, you know, he has this whole series, the, the Mars trilogy, about colonizing Mars, which is a very like wild Elon Musk idea that does feel like a waste of resources, etc. But like in those books, he acknowledges, you know, what has happened on Earth and, you know, population explosion and things like that. And it's it's just an interesting future to consider because it's it's hard at the moment to think about like the next 10 years, the next 50 years. But I can maybe think about like 200 years from now, you know? Yeah, yeah. That that sort of, it's it's really funny how you don't expect things to change dramatically in your lifetime. But my kids will have no idea what rotary phones were. And I do, you know, <laughs> like... <laughs> And all sorts of things like that, like VHS tapes and, you know, all these things that there are internet memes about where we have to explain that there was no streaming or social media, no cell phones or very big ones, you know, and they didn't have the internet on them. Uh, things of that nature, right? Like, we have changed a lot. We're both like 30, right? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't been around for an extremely long time. <laughs> but uh, a lot has changed about the world. And like, I have no idea how to envision what will happen in the next... 30 years of my life but you know like yourself i can maybe you know like envision much further than that yeah and that's what science fiction is good for 
Wild Wild Tech is a Studio 71 original podcast and a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, Jordan Erica Weber, and Joshua Rivera. You can find us at jordanweber.com and at jmrivera02 on Twitter. Our producers are Reyes Mendoza, Cody Hoffmockel, and Janielle Kastner, with help from Trey Jones and Clay Kim. This episode was mixed by Will Short. Our executive producers are Stephen Perlstein and Andrew Seeley for Studio 71, and Aaliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds for Spoke Media. Special thanks to Alexandra Samuel for joining us for this episode. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at Wild Wild Tech Pod. Thanks for listening. Uh, Le Tour du Monde en 80 jours. Wow. Otherwise known okay, as sorry. Around the World in 80 I'm Days. I'm going to cut you off. <laughs> you clearly wanted to flex there. <laughs>